Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Molly Strougler. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM and also podcasting as part of the Tej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Goleska, plus an interview with Professor of Education at the University of Virginia, Michael Lyons, on his work in clinical and school psychology. But right now, we're joined here in the studio by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporters, Emily Hayes, Charlotte Woods, and Charlottesville Tomorrow intern, Ali Sullivan. Today we are checking in with Charlottesville Tomorrow reporters to get the latest on primary results and recent developments on two important county land use projects. We're going to start with the primary results. So Sally Hudson and Kathy Galvin were two women who faced off in the uh, House 57th district. And um, while during the campaign process, as I was speaking with a lot of people, uh, the common refrain I was hearing was, we're in good hands with either candidate. Um, But ultimately, as election night unveiled, uh, Sally won by a much larger margin. Um, So I think she she pulled um, way more of the votes than Galvin did. Now, uh, concerning the city council, we're going to move on to that. How did that pan out? Yes, so uh, Michael Payne ended up earning the most votes with Lloyd Snook behind him, and then Cena McGill actually had a bit of a back and forth because Brian Pinkston and her for much of the night were polling very, very close behind each other, Um, and ultimately Cena pulled through. Um, And... Now going forward, as the general election is approaching in in November, uh, there's going to be three independent candidates challenging them. uh, Bellamy Brown, Paul Long, and John Edward Hall. And so far, it seems like Bellamy Brown has been the name on a lot of people's lips. And then the Democratic primary winners are going to have to ask themselves, do they want to kind of approach the next half of the campaign as a like solidified unit, or if it's every man for themselves and see how things could shake out in November. What other races um, should we be aware of and uh, of those results? I think Senate 17 is worth paying attention to at the state level. It encompasses, um, it's a wide district that goes stretches all the way to Spotsylvania and Fredericksburg, but it encompasses some of Albemarle County. Um, the person who won the Democratic primary is Amy Laufer. She uh, was a former Charlottesville school board member. She resigned when she moved to Albemarle County, and now she won her primary. Um, it is also worth noting that her indep- um, her Republican challenger, who's the incumbent, Senator Bryce Reeves, both she and Reeves both polled about the same amount of votes as they won their primaries. So that kind of is indicative of how purple that district is. Are there any extra races? I know in the Ravenna district, they had the Board of Supervisors. Can we talk a little bit about that? That is a really exciting and interesting race. Uh, it was very close. Um, I believe Bela Pisto Kirtley, she won with 896 votes. Uh, Gerard Smith pulled 757 And just the dynamics between the two candidates, they had a lot of similar policy ideas. um, And really, it just comes down to the resume of the candidates. Um, B. Lepisto currently has lived in the Albemarle County area for 12 years, but previously she has a couple decades worth of experience in local government when she lived in California. Meanwhile, uh, Gerard Smith has this was his first ever campaign. He is a UVA grad. He studied public policy and um, 
politics, and he has also done a lot of internships. Like, he was a mayoral fellow in Chicago in 2014, so, you know, he's stepping up to the bat, and the race was very close. Lastly, I just want to take a look at and examine some of those young candidates. It seems like there was a, a stream towards that. I was wondering if, if you could talk a little bit about that trend. I mean, if you look at the federal level with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, I feel like there's definitely a bit of a trickle down um, as, you know, Michael Payne is 26, Gerard Smith is 29, Sally Hudson is 30. Um, a lot of Sally and, and Michael's uh, campaign staff are young. I mean, their comms director is a University of Virginia's third year student. Um, and I spoke with him on election night and he was talking about just more and more young people are getting engaged in politics and taking action and having a voice and realizing that it doesn't just have to be for the career politicians or the the older people. You can you can dive in, you can operate a grassroots campaign and get your voice heard. Um, and there's definitely been much more of a shift in the local, state, um, and federal level of millennials and, and younger generations taking action. I mean, it's also worth noting recently we had two 11-year-olds organize a, organize a climate strike. Even, even as young as that, people are, are voicing their concerns and taking action. Now switching gears here, we want to look at those most recent updates on the two important county land use projects. Yeah, so one is um, in Southwood. Um, it's a currently a trailer uh, a mobile home park, and then there's in downtown Crozet. So what the county is doing is they're con- thinking about contributing a combined $6.4 million to these two projects. They've both been sort of in the works for a long time. Um, Southwood is a Habitat for Humanity project. Um, It's currently a mobile home park, and they're trying to redevelop it without displacing anyone who doesn't, um, didn't already want to head out to a different neighborhood. Um, So they've been building trust in that neighborhood for a long time, getting together all of the sources of of funding that they'll need to do this massive project. Um, And so this is an extra piece of of funding for them, it's not as much as some of their other sources, like they're, um, they're selling part of it to a private developer, which will be incorporated into the neighborhood. Um, but it provides assurance to the county that there will be affordable housing there. All of the funding is based on um, basically perf- it's perform- a performance agreement. So the habitat has to provide certain amounts of affordable housing or certain um, benchmarks and then they'll get the funding. Um, it's a similar kind of performance agreement with this um, former Barnes Lumber um, site in downtown Crozet. Um, there's been some interest in Crozet in having um, a specific road and a, pl- a public plaza to sort of anchor the downtown and provide the kind of traffic that, that they um, want. And so the county did a similar agreement with them where they will get money and get some tax rebates based on, um, you know, when they develop those things. Um, both of those projects need, still need rezonings. They still need to go through this full county process, um, and those are scheduled to go before the Board of Supervisors on August 21st. And how is that really sitting with the community? Is, is the community at large happy with this how was the reaction to that? These are both really interesting projects because, um, you know, Southwood is a huge community. People have been um, very anxious that that displacement might happen there. You know, there have been rumors floating around that that Habitat actually, you know, or 
people just think that some, a hotel might come in or that they'll have to move. And so getting these first pieces shows residents, no, there's going to be housing for you. This is all for you. It's They have groups of residents who are even leading the planning discussions, but still you hear some of these rumors floating around. Um, I think Crozet, there's also been, you know, groups of people trying to create a, a downtown there with this plaza. And, I, you know, that's been in the works for a while as well. I would just say for at least downtown Crozet, um, spoke with a developer and he was telling us that it's there's some inspiration from like Italian piazzas and the downtown mall in Charlottesville. Um, they really want to focus on how that can be like an economic development boost, like just boost, boosting and bolstering the local businesses. And there has been community um, input on what, you know, the people in Crozet area want to see in terms of the roadways. So um, now it's just a matter of working with VDOT. Are there any next steps on the rezoning part of this process that we want to be aware of? Yeah, so the, the rezoning public hearing is August 21st. That's something um, where people can come and, and provide their comments and the board will make their final decision on that. There's also um, more immediately the board is going to decide whether to provide these contributions and sign these performance agreements. And that will be next Wednesday. That's Wednesday, June 19th. Thank you guys for coming in today. Stay tuned for more updates on those county land use projects. We really appreciate your time, guys. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and Tej FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that, opinions, not the positions of the University of Virginia. Well, here on Soundboard, we check in with state news each week, and as we do, we talk with our journalist friend over in the Richmond area, Peter Glaska. Peter, good morning. Good morning. So, big news here in Virginia this week was the primary elections on Tuesday. Uh, yeah. They were all around the state, primaries for the Democrat and Republican primaries for the House of Delegates and the state Senate, uh, plus some bunch of local races that are of note. Uh, let's go through a big picture. What's the What's the main takeaway? Well, of course, um, all of the, in the General Assembly, all of the seats are up in the House of Delegates and the Senate. Uh, which makes it an important race. Um, also, there are a number of constitutional officer races that were up, which showed some influence. And then in Charlottesville, of course, there was um, Toscano's seat. There was some interesting stuff going on there, too. Um, what did not happen was not there was does not to have been appeared to be a um, some kind of right wing background, uh, particularly by Republicans who are angry that some of their colleagues may have supported Medicaid expansion, which is the big touchstone issue for the last several years. And in, in many ways, on the other side of the coin, among the blues, uh, it's 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 blue versus blue, and who's bluer? And um, it shows kind of the, the rising almost radicalism in some parts of, of the state as far as uh, being liberal. All right. Well, 
Let's tease some of this out then. Uh, start with the Republican primaries. We had a bunch of, of Republican lawmakers who did vote for Medicaid expansion in the 2018 assembly session. And that was a big bugaboo for a lot of, of GOP activists who really didn't want to see the, the Affordable Care Act expanded in Virginia. Um, but those lawmakers, the incumbents largely did not lose their seats. Right. Well, I think the leading one, the one that everybody was watching, is was Emmett Hanger, um, who you know is out out there in the um, in the mountains, sort of not too far from Charlottesville, and he's always he's a Republican, but he's always been regarded as a um, a fairly um, cool-headed uh, moderate, and he was challenged by uh, Tina Friedis. Uh, uh, someone to the more to the right who was uh, really running against him, saying he wasn't conservative enough, and um, you know, and so it goes, and and he beat her, uh, not by much, but he beat her. He held on to his seat. So that was that was one thing that everybody was watching at. The other one on the other side, with the Democratic Party, was uh, Richard Saslow, um, who um, has been regarded as sort of a socially liberal, but very pro-business and a particularly pro-Dominion. Uh, and he very narrowly held on to his seat as well. So, um, so there you have it. I mean, that, those are those two races really kind of summed up that you know the 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 level did not move very much at all to the to the right, maybe somewhat to the left. Yeah, so the short version, uh, where there were incumbents, the power of incumbency pretty well kept yeah. them in place. But right. but there were still uh, there's definitely some forces trying to pull hard to the right, and also some forces pulling pulling to the left. Right, exactly. And uh, let me just one thing that really interested me was was the Commonwealth Attorney races up in Northern Virginia in uh, Arlington and Fairfax, where um, Parisa uh, Dogani Tafti, who's a defense attorney and, and very liberal. Uh, defeated Theo Stamos, who is a moderately liberal uh, Commonwealth attorney, uh, and and then another race. She, that race and another race actually got nearly a million dollars from liberal billionaire uh, philanthropist George Soros, who is known internationally for his largesse and for his uh, activism. And that that got a lot of attention because um, you know it shows that um, in those races, um, you know, outside money really is coming in. It always had been for the Republicans from people like the Koch brothers and others, but this time it's really coming in from the rich lefties. And that even caught the attention of the Washington Post. So what does that race about? I mean, what, what were the big issues and what's well, the... the... issues, I think, I, I knew Theo Stamos. I actually worked with her once before she was a lawyer in Washington on a, on a publication. Um, she was, you know, she did not... The, the Democratic machine was sort of down on her in a way because she did not exactly go along with former Governor Terry McAuliffe's... Um, you know, restore rights to all felons. Uh, she just didn't like that. And and so um, the other one, Tofty, came in just really wanting to, to really push, you know, cutting back on cash bail, cut, cutting back on a lot of things, and really taking, becoming a more, bringing a more progressive approach into the prosecutor's office. And that won. And, of course, it's Northern Virginia doesn't. I don't know if that means a lot for the rest of the state. But anyway, that was a significant, another significant aspect to it. So having these, these progressives uh, in you know, sort of the law and order position, you know, the, the top cop type position, it, it, it's... Yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting because usually um, people who tend to run for those positions tend to be, you know, hang them high. And that's just not the case in, the, in, in this situation. You had some interesting stuff going on in Charlottesville, which I think that you, you obviously know more about than I do. Um, you know, we said Sa- Sally Hudson, uh, uh, you have a young, young UVA uh, economists uh, running against uh, 
uh, Kathy Calvin, I believe, winning, uh, to um, replace the seat that had been held by David Toscano. Yeah, but one of the more bizarre races, which really is apropos of nothing, is what happened with our old friend Joe Morrissey. Yeah, Joe Morrissey is a very colorful character in state politics. Oh, he is. Um, he, he actually beat um, a solid Democrat uh, dance, uh, Rosalind Dance, for a seat in, from Petersburg for the Senate. And Morrissey, you know, it's just been, he's, he's still trying to get his law license back. He got into real trouble a few years ago by having sex with an underage work coworker, whom he later married and had, I think, three children. And before then, this time, he, he'd lost his law license previously. He's gotten into fights with people, you know, in regard to his public offices. And so he's just a really, you know, he, he's the Democratic uh, Party wishes he'd just go away, but he keeps coming back. And he actually makes sense sometimes. I've talked to him before on some <laughs> issues, but he just has this kind of wild side to him that just, you know. Yeah, from what I've I've read and, and heard as an administrator, he's actually not not too terrible uh, as a lawmaker, even. But but as a personality, he's he's uh, just completely over the top. <laughs> I know. <laughs> At one point, I think where did he go? He went to Ireland or Australia, tried to teach law, and even they didn't want him. Um, but anyway, but that's what's going on. It's going to be continuing to be a very interesting race, in which you're seeing the only real takeaway I think you have at the moment is this new churn that began a few elections ago. And this is a churn that you're seeing more Virginia go from red to more and more purple, maybe in some places solid blue. And um, we'll see how this works out. Uh, meanwhile, of course, you have Governor Ralph Northam trying to recover from his scandal by, you know, cashing in on, on a gun special session on gun control, which is actually badly needed. And that comes in July. Yeah, let's. I mean, I know we're mostly talking about elections here, but let's let's visit that one just real quick. There's some analysis that if Ralph Northam comes out of this and actually gets something through, he might come out of that whole scandal with more power than he ever had. That could be ha- that true. I, I agree with that. I mean, don't forget, despite Terry McAuliffe's his pred- Democratic predecessor's many many stolid tries to get Medicaid expansion through, Northam actually did it. And Northam seemed to be, outside of his rather poor environmental record, he seemed to be doing pretty well until this whole crazy blackface yearbook from medical school thing happened. And, uh, you know, he might very well, people, you know, everybody was calling for his head at that time, including most Democrats. But he's held on. Um, well, so these are obviously the primaries. Nobody elected here is officially taking office yet. But a lot of these districts, like like Sally Hudson here in Charlottesville, for example, there's no Republican running. So effectively, she's yeah. she's the winner. But there are. But, but you know, really, Nathan, the thing that, that really strikes me is it's not that long ago, maybe ten years ago, primaries were really nothing. Primaries were pro forma, and that's where Republicans tended to dominate. And that's where you got more radical Republicans in because nobody would ever run against them. That is clearly changing, and that's an important that's an important development. Well, so what do you mean by that? That, uh, that now... what I mean is that you know, especially in the more rural areas, I mean the more socially conservative Republicans would make their you know would really run in the primaries, and if they won, they'd be fine. But the seat was still going to be Republican either way. Now, that seemed to be the modus operandi, except, say, for the big cities. Now that's changing, and, and that's significant. That's a shift. Well, so going into the November elections, we will have a few districts around the state that are, uh, that are competitive still, but gerrymandering has made a lot of them not. Yeah, I know. We, we're still waiting to see what happens with the courts and gerrymandering, too. Um, that's, there's a lot. Of, it's too complicated again, and now we've discussed it before, but so we'll see what happens. All right, Peter. Thanks for checking in. Okay.
Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU and the Tej FM Network. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM Network, T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. I'm sitting down today with Michael Lyons, Assistant Professor of Education. Michael, can you talk a little bit about your work and your background? Thanks for having me here today. So my work, uh, I'm trained as a school psychologist, um, and my work in the College of Education is uh, related to clinical and school psychology, so training future uh, psychologists to work with kids in schools um, to promote uh, psychological well-being and promote school outcomes. I also work uh, in youth and social innovation, which is a new undergraduate major at the University of uh, Virginia that's focused on innovation uh, in education broadly defined. So uh, within the school context, within the after-school context, uh, how uh, can we promote uh, optimal development in youth? Now, I know that's an incredibly broad, complex, and a topic. Can you just to help us wrap our head around that? Give us one or two specific examples of innovative approaches that that really interest you. You think are really successful, or changes you've been trying to 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 study or push for within. Uh, you know, stu- student and school psychologists, for example. Absolutely. So I'll give you a, a popular example, mentoring. Men- school-based mentoring programs are one of the most popular ways uh, to think about promoting positive youth development. One of the ways that, that I think about uh, school-based mentoring and improving the impacts of school-based mentoring is to get mentors to think about um, the youth and sort of what the youth needs within that uh, within that relationship? Do they need academic study skills, for example? Or do they need uh, somebody to just listen to them and hear kind of what's been going on in their life? Um, that's a really challenging uh, skill for, for mentors and, and adults generally to, to do, to be able to respond adaptively to uh, the changing needs of, of youth. Um, most of my work is in early adolescence, middle school, uh, and as um, you may know, middle school is a challenging time for 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 most people, uh, and the need to adaptively respond to changing needs of youth is 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 increased during that period. Now, for people who aren't in the field, or, or even just maybe uh, lay scientists, people who aren't as familiar with the scientific method in this context, when you're trying to explore these methods and find best practices, how do you go about testing these things? How do you go about researching um, how to provide these best needs for for students who are so incredibly diverse? Yeah. So as you say, it's, it's a challenging uh, problem to solve, both um, from a social social perspective, but also from a uh, from a research perspective as well. Um, we've taken a, a multi method approach where we uh, use qualitative analyses, conduct focus groups with youth, um, develop. Uh, curricula collaboratively with uh, various stakeholders, and so not just um, the adults, the teachers, the schools in the room, but also with uh, with the youth. Um, and uh, and then we've also taken quantitative uh, approaches to understand uh, how 
uh, our outcomes change from the beginning of the of the program to the end. And our outcomes uh, can be academic outcomes, can be behavioral outcomes, um, and social-emotional outcomes. So how does the youth feel? Uh, how connected does the youth feel to, to their school? Um, how do they feel about their the quality of their life kind of overall at the end of the program? So can you talk a little bit more about your own particular focus? Why middle school or middle and high school? Why that particular time in education? Do you feel like it's it's do you find most fascinating or most important for your research? Yeah, it's a it's a uh, a critical period developmentally where youth are beginning to um, see themselves more independently. That um, the social dynamics start to change. That the uh, peers become more important. Other adults that are not family members become more important. Uh, early adolescence is also a period where um, they may be fe- facing new stressors that they hadn't faced before, challenging social situations, um, challenging dynamics um, that often um, may be best served by some outside kind of uh, inter- intervention um, where uh, parents, families, play a, a critical role throughout youth development, but during that, uh, that period, uh, maybe a, a unique period where we can, we can intervene uh, using some other, some other outside resources. So I've asked you a lot about your research and about the specifics, and I appreciate, appreciate the details, but uh, maybe stepping back for a moment, why is it uh, so interesting to you, so important? What about it... Um, for you personally, got you first involved, got you first interested? Yeah, so my my background um, is, I have a sort of a mixed background. I have a background in economics, a, a bachelor's degree in economics, and um, I also was always very passionate about working with youth. And I always was interested in trying to find a way to um, blend rigorous scientific research with on-the-ground applied work that actually had meaning uh, for uh for youth and for the families and um, people that, that work with them. To me, school psychology did that for me. And uh, it was a way to uh, think rigorously about programming and how uh, systems influence youth development uh, while also having a direct impact on, on children. And I, and I carry that kind of philosophy uh, in my current work, uh, that I'm, I'm interested in uh, doing rigorous research, but not just for research's sake. Uh, I, I want the work that I do to have a, a real applied uh, impact on um, the people that we, that we serve. In the research you've done and, and you're doing, I know one of the things, the focuses you mentioned, of course, was, was mentoring. Within mentoring or even outside of it, is there anything in particular that you're really interested in, a, a new approach or, or a change in thinking that, that you think has a lot of potential? Yeah, so we have, a, we have an interesting uh, new study that's coming out uh, uh, very soon in the American Journal of Community Psychology. Um, what we did, we looked at a program, a school-based mentoring program that previously had uh, no effects on uh, any of the outcomes that they measured. They, they randomly assigned about 2,600 youth to receive a mentor. Um, and at the end of that program, they found that mentors had uh, approximately no effects on academic outcomes, grades, uh, no effects on behavioral outcomes, delinquency, misconduct. Um, one of the ways that we looked at this was... Um, we uh, looked at how uh, youth were reporting they felt w- about their mentor. 
Did they feel like their mentor trusted them? Did they feel like their mentor connected with them on a, a regular a regular basis? But also, we asked mentors, or we looked at if mentors um, set goals with their youth. Did they provide feedback about how they were doing? And what we found was it was the combination of those two effects uh, that had the biggest positive effect on uh, on youth outcomes, particularly the behavioral outcomes. So for mentors who set goals, provided feedback, and had youth who s- reported that they felt really connected, um, they had a they had a they had a large positive effect on uh, improving um, delinquency and misconduct in the schools, uh, and they also. Uh, in some cases, had had um, had a, a positive effects on on academic outcomes. So the big question now is, how do we do that? How do we get mentors to do more of that? And how do we get mentors to think um, adaptively, kind of in the moment, about is this a moment where I need to 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 work on building a relationship, building a, a trusting, uh, demonstrating that I care uh, with my with my mentor, or does my or sorry, my mentee? Um, or does what my mentee need from me right now are, are some, some other skills? Do they need to know how, to, how, do, I, how do I study most effectively? Uh, how do I um, cope with this stressful event that just happened um, in school today? Um, but again, this work is being developed collaboratively with, with partners, and so exactly what that looks like is going to depend on what the, what the agencies need and, and, um, and what, what, what everybody feels is, is most useful for them. That was WTJU producer and content director Lewis Raining sitting down and talking with Michael Lyons, associate professor of education at the University of Virginia. That's it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Molly Strauchler. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Marina Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or our podcast home at TEEJ.FM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week.